Welcome to Wise Monkeys Podcast. I am your host, Gabriel Fronza. I am back from a two-month sabbatical in Brazil. I spent some time with my family and I ran away from the winter and the lockdown in the Netherlands. I also took this time to focus myself in other areas of my life. Eventually, of course, it's good to be productive again. So here I am starting a new episode of my podcast with Moritz Mui, who is a theoretical physicist from Amsterdam. He's also a programmer and a psychedelics entrepreneur. Very interesting guy. In his episodes, we discussed the regulations of marijuana in Europe. We discussed the development of consciousness in human beings. The idea of the universe being in a simulation. We talked about quantum physics, how it can affect our daily lives, and how technology could lead to telepathic communication, among other topics. These are really the type of conversations that I love to have with people. So I hope you enjoy and I bring you Mauritz. Right. Hey, Morris, welcome to your own couch. How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you. I feel so welcome. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Yeah, I love having this portable studio that I just carry everywhere. Yeah, right now I'm holding my microphone inside of a jug of <laughs> water. Pitcher, glass pitcher. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the things we do for love. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty well equipped. I have to give you that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so with you today, I'd like to discuss a few subjects. You are a physicist. You studied quantum physics. And at the same time, you are starting a business involving psychedelics which is completely legal here in the Netherlands, the most progressive <laughs> part of the planet. Mm, I wouldn't agree on that, but... No? About Holland being the most progressive part of the planet. Okay, so no. uh, let's uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I mean... Back uh, where would be the most uh, progressive part of the planet? I think right now, when it comes to substance policies, it probably would be North America, United States and or Canada. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these countries are usually not known for their for them being the most progressive in many different views, I guess. When it comes to politics, maybe, I think their election system is a little bit outdated, for example. But when it comes to um, legislation, they're doing a pretty good job. So, I mean, Holland traditionally is known as the progressive country where it, when it comes to weed and whatnot, because it's been, it's been possible to buy weed legally on the streets well, in coffee shops, right, for as long as I can remember. But this policy is actually a little bit outdated right now. And compared to, for example, federal bills being passed right now, a few days ago, a federal bill was passed on complete decriminalization of cannabis on the federal level, right, which is a massive step forward. And in Holland, it's officially still illegal. It's just being tolerated. I see. It's not even decriminalized, I think. It's just tolerated. The yeah. police officer will pass by you and he will not do anything. Exactly. But on yeah. theory, you could be sent to jail. But not even that. Possession, small quantities, and sale is tolerated. I see. But cultivation is not. So yeah. then, you know, this marijuana just pops up magically in the coffee shops. Yeah. Which comes along with a lot of problems because it facilitates the illegal activities around it, right? Rather yeah. than if it were to be if it were to be legal, then that also could be regulated. 
I see. So that, yeah, I think it's actually a pretty conservative system, except for psilocybin. The only Western European country, or at least Western country, I think, yeah, in which psilocybin in at least one form is completely legal, which is fruit truffles. Truffles. Yeah. And what's the difference between truffles and mushrooms? Uh, that's a technical question, but I think it's... For the sake of the conversation, we can just say there is none. I mean, there's small differences in terms of their chemical structures. Well, I mean, the, the active compound is still psilocybin. But then, in the end, what you're dealing with is when you're consuming a mushroom or a truffle, so you're consuming the entire organism, right? And not just extracting the psilocybin from it. So, ultimately, what you're dealing with is the entire package, which is either the truffle or the mushroom, which is has a lot more... Um, mystery alkaloids, for example, that we're not really sure of what they do. Alkaloids. Yeah, so psilocybin is an alkaloid. It's a category of, of chemical compound. So the question is, psilocybin cubensis are the magic mushrooms, are known as magic mushrooms. Yeah, so psilocybin is the active compound in magic mushrooms that gives you the psychedelic experience. But in the end, it is not just the consumption of psilocybin, it gives you the experience that you have when you take truffles. It is the, the complete package of psilocybin and all the other substances that can be found in this, uh, in this organism, which results in a truffle experience being slightly different than a mushroom experience, and even a mushroom experience being slightly different from a mushroom experience, because depending on where it grew naturally or in a grow kit or whatnot, yeah. I mean, it's like a human, right? And humans are all different. Yeah, um, okay. What is the theory behind the, the history of the usage of this substance? Where did it all started? The research on it? The practical uses in therapy? Mm, mm, mm. Like I imagine it started with natives in America, but I don't really know the story. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an authority in this field. I don't know that much about it. By, but um, it's very interesting to see that, to, to think about how humans might have co-evolved with, with psychedelics growing in the wild. There's the theory called the stone ape theory. Have you heard of that? No. So I think the stone ape theory is uh, just a wild idea, which might not or might be rooted in, in reality, that describes how through the usage of psychoactive substances like mushrooms that grew in the wild, primates or whatever stage we were in at that moment, actually developed their consciousness, at least the cognitive part of the brain that contributes to consciousness, through the consumption of psychoactive mushrooms. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Is there a lot of a lot of research to back that idea up? Uh, I don't think so. I'm not sure. I mean, it's... Uh, that's funny, you know, because people that take psychedelics and that are familiar with them, they always end up talking about the same thing, which is consciousness. Because, I mean, what psychedelics do is they bring you into an altered state of consciousness and it really makes you contemplate the nature of consciousness. And ultimately... Consciousness is one of the biggest mysteries that we have right now out there floating in the ether to be, to be solved. And because psychedelics have such a profound effect on consciousness, it's very tempting to, to relate psychedelic substance with the development of consciousness because consciousness takes on such radical forms potentially when you, when you interact with it. But how exactly, how exactly the stoned ape theory follows from this, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I, I tend to think of consciousness as something that is not dichotomous, which is to say that it's not yes or no. It's a spectrum, right? So I, there being a degree of consciousness, 
where one could, for example, scale it using humans as a reference point and a rock. So then on one side of the spectrum, it would be a rock, which we could assume that it has no consciousness whatsoever. And on the other side of the spectrum is the human, which has, as gauged by our experience, full consciousness. Um, and then you could probably put animals on this spectrum, although it probably still is an oversimplification, you could probably express animal consciousness in terms of human consciousness, like the experience of an elephant is half as profound in terms of, well, profound is not the right word, half as um, as as deep. Or valuable. As, yeah, as, as, as conscious, you know? So, yeah. I mean, half as conscious as, as human consciousness, for example. Does it mean that their life is half the worth of our life? Uh, no, definitely not. No, to me, animal welfare and philosophizing about what consciousness means and whether animals have consciousness or not is a comp is a sub and even plants the same goes for plants i think it's very interesting to think about plant consciousness as well yeah and it does no there's no moral claim there whatsoever that because they have no consciousness or because you have a certain degree of consciousness there's a certain morality associated to them yeah buddha wouldn't kill a fly i guess he wouldn't but <laughs> i don't know i wasn't there would he not do that because the fly has consciousness I mean, I'm not a Buddhist. No. I don't. I don't know a lot about it. Me neither. My point is that I think it's very interesting to think about the degrees at at which consciousness can manifest throughout yeah. the universe, without having to worry about its moral implications. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what is beyond our level of consciousness. What would happen to humans if we were given another ten, twenty, fifty million years on Earth? How far could we go with our brain? What would happen if you give one particular human? roughly 100 years, assuming that it's just a newborn, after roughly 100 years, this human dies, right? And one could ponder the question, what happens to the conscience of that specific individual? This is obviously a question that has been thought about for many years by many philosophies and many religions. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very interesting question. It's something that I've been thinking about more and more recently. Death. I mean, death is associated to it. Yes. But emergence of consciousness, that's what I've been wondering about. You, de you develop software. Have you adventured yourself with artificial intelligence? I have not. I have not. Do you understand something about I, it? I, I get the general gist of it, yes. Some intelligence will come out of it? Some consciousness? Some intelligence, yes. Some consciousness, I don't know. So, in general, there's two flavors that people tend to think about consciousness when it comes to their emergence. There is, on one side of the spectrum, there is the theory of consciousness being a emergent process in the brain. Yeah. Which is to say that just throw together enough biochemistry, just throw together enough biochemistry, just enough molecules and, I don't know, organic material the way that we have in the brain and make it, where to, make it work together the way that it does in our brain. And ultimately what rises from that is, um, is consciousness, which is to say that in this interpretation, consciousness is purely local to the brain. That if you were to put a hypothetical box around our head through which nothing can, can travel through, nothing can permeate the, this membrane of the box that is put around our head, we can say with 100% certainty that all of consciousness that this individual is experiencing lies within that box, Yeah. right? Um, this is, of course, in line with what most people think intuitively about consciousness. Not necessarily most people. There's a whole other branch of people that think about consciousness being emergent from a completely different point of view. Which so like is, a soul? Well, I mean, a soul could still be living in the brain, right? Yeah. Have you heard of the theory that we live in a simulation? Imagine the Matrix, mm -hmm. and in Matrix, they had their bodies, 
outside of the matrix. But why would they even have a body? Why are, aren't they just a brain with a nervous system attached to a computer program that is simulating their, their immediate existence? I always wonder what, what would follow from that? How would it solve anything thinking about that? I don't think it answers any metaphysical questions. No, it's just for fun. <laughs> it's just, well, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fun. It's yeah. like a Rick and Morty episode. There's, um, there's a pretty interesting thought by Elon Musk. Have you heard about this? About his reasoning, his line of reasoning as, as to why he thinks that we're living in a simulation. Have you heard of this argument? No. It's pretty interesting. I mean, let me say up front, I don't think it's clarifying anything. I don't think it's helpful to realize what he what he's realizing. Yeah. But I also think that he's probably right. But so let me let me try to outline his argument. So what he describes is that I mean you're a you're a game designer, right? You're yes. a graphic designer. So you're pretty uh, aware of the of the level of sophistication that we can currently generate in our graphic designs, right? Sim it's only a matter of time at which we can make graphic experiences that are indistinguishable from real. We're already seeing it with deep fakes. Yeah. Now from that um, the current development with VR. His argument is like is something along the lines of give humanity, you know, at the current rate of advancement in graphical design and computer design, give humanity another few hundred years, beh, uh, ten thousand years, all right, twenty thousand years, whatever. Yeah. Now imagine what that would, what consoles would look like at that moment. Yeah. Given that we don't all die, that we don't have any uh, 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 any doomsday scenario of the world, if we would I... all have we would all have a a console that is capable of of running a world that is like this. Yeah, apparently technology upgrades by, by the power of two every two years. Exactly, yeah. It's called the Morris Law, is that right? Murphy's Law. Murphy's, uh, no. No, no, no Morris Law. Morris yeah, Law, yeah. yeah. yeah right. um, so his argument is that if we were to base universe, then it is in the line of expectations that in 10,000 years, for sure, we would all have consoles as power, powerful enough to create to simulate universes the way that we have them right now, that they're indistinguishable from, from reality. Which is to say that given a population of, I don't know, 10 yeah. billion people. Anyone who puts a VR headset right now can already have a very realistic experience. Right. But, but in 10,000 years, it's going to be indistinguishable. As a matter of fact, it could be as profound, as, 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 as detailed as the universe. So the argument is that in 10,000 years, we would have consoles being able to do that. There would probably be I don't know, two billion of these consoles floating around the earth, which means that <laughs> our current, our current, say for example that there are two billion of these consoles, then the chances of this reality being base reality, being real reality, is one out of two billion. Does that make sense? So the chances of this being real is one out of two billion, or one out of how many consoles there will be in the future. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a pretty strong argument, but at the same time, I think it doesn't solve anything because. Even if this is fake and we were able to snap out of it, then it doesn't answer any metaphysical questions beyond it. So even though it's a funny thing to realize, I don't think it's a very helpful thing to realize when it comes to solving metaphysical debates. If it would be true, it sounds like a nightmare. Well, because then what, what stops the civilization that designed the universe we live in to be in an also a designed universe? You could make this go on forever. Well, I would say it's not a nightmare. I would say it's the most optimal scenario. I sure hope it's a, that's, Elon Musk also says that. I sure hope it's a simulation because if it's not a simulation, well, at the current rate of how we're dealing with the world, it means we're fucked. <laughs> so it better be a simulation. What if we design a civilization that runs in a simulation and then they get to a point that they can make simulations as well. 
and then they design a simulation and that turns out to be us. Yeah, I mean, and that's we, possible. We keep on designing each other. It's possible, but does it answer any question? I mean, yeah. What does he have to? I mean, it oh, would okay. answer the question where we come from. We come from the civilization that made us who was made by us. Not really, because to truly answer the question where we come from, that implies a certain knowledge about the rules that have shaped us. But if we're in a simulation, then the rules that have shaped us are directly dependent on the rules of in which the simulation runs. All right. What is a meaningful question? Because I think that no matter what you find out, you'll always believe there is also another layer behind that. And I don't think we'll ever be able to really fully understand what, what is the code of the universe. And what if we are just a piece of software trying to understand the hardware? Well, I mean, if we're just a piece of software trying to understand the hardware, or if we're just humans living in the universe, which would be the equivalent of that, then there's a certain set of phenomena that we observe around us. As long as we haven't figured out how to completely comprehensively describe all of these phenomena, we haven't reached a deeper layer. And the moment that we have, the moment that we are capable of not necessarily predicting, but completely qualitatively describing everything around us, then there might still be a layer beyond that, but that layer is not going to add anything to our understanding of the universe rather than just being another layer behind it. It's not going to explain anything more other than we already know. So I feel like, yes, there might be an infinite, there might be an infinite depth in, but there's a finite depth at which you need to go in order to reach a certain level of, uh, of understanding of the universe. You studied quantum physics. Are there answers you found recently that at least give you more meaning in life? I mean, in the end of the day, that's the ultimate question. Why are we here? I think so, yeah. I mean, quantum physics being something that operates on the quantum scale and therefore usually not on the level of humans on the macroscopic scale is something that's usually very far away from daily life. But at the same time, I think what makes a lot of people feel very real is mystic experiences. These are very human. Things that people experience that are very real that, that we can't quite, quite comprehend. Um, a lot of these experiences, spiritual experiences, they mean a lot to people, yet we don't really qualitatively understand them the way that we understand the laws of the universe so far in terms of physics. Quantum physics, I believe, is, is a set of tools that, for me at least, has opened up some doors into different ways of understanding very real experiences that previously for me were unexplainable. Because I, I, I've heard a lot about quantum physics, but it seems to be so hard to hold the theory in your mind mm -hmm. and make sense of it. How does it relate to a human being? It seems to me like it applies mainly to very, very small things or to very ginormous things that are extremely far away. <laughs> How does it have an effect in our daily life? Why should I even pay attention to quantum physics? It's a good question. It's a good question. So, so quantum physics as being practiced as a discipline in science is not directly helpful for anything meaningful on the level of human experience because quantum physics is a model within physics, a mathematical model, which is very good at one thing, which is predicting behavior of particles that operate at the quantum scale, which is the thing you, read, you'll, you would read about in the paper. And that's what quantum physics is good for. And a lot of people would argue it's the only thing it's good at. And then a lot of spiritual people rush in. Um, they hijack a lot, of, a lot of quantum phenomena and use it to justify certain beliefs they have, even though these principles that they use 
they weren't designed for that. They were designed for completely for something completely different. Deepak Chopra. Yeah. I don't know I don't know a lot about his beliefs, but I've seen a lot of, a lot of weird quantum related stuff that clearly bears no relevance to me at least to to quantum physics. But that's not to say that it's not a good idea potentially to look at these principles because that's how physics works. There's a, a set of principles and then these principles we translate them to mathematical equations and then we play with these equations to see what kind of phenomena emerge from it. But it's not a bad idea per se, I think, is to look at these principles and see what they mean from an intuitive point of view and then kind of see we can apply these principles to other systems that uh, are not these same systems that we use quantum mechanics for. It's just that you need to be very careful when you do that and a lot of people are not mindful of how they're using the principles of quantum physics beyond their original usage and summarizing it you're saying it doesn't apply to spirituality i think it does but only if you're very <laughs> only if you're very careful okay so, so let us be very careful let's be very careful where does it take us i think one thing that every scientist who is curious and curious they all should be i believe that's a prerequisite right i believe every scientist should be curious I believe every scientist should be aware of its own paradigm because there's always a paradigm in which you're operating. I think also scientists should be very sensitive to anomalies. I'm curious about the paradigm. A lot of spiritual experiences that we have, like telepathic communication, for example, we have no clear evidence how anything like this sh sh could work. As a matter of fact, there's a few problems with, for example, telepathic communication because... If you were to try to prove telepathy, which we're not, but let's say in a fictitious world, um, my brain would get in touch with the signals from your brain, which I believe it could happen if we designed two devices in each of our heads that can send Bluetooth information. Well, that would be quite annoying, but <laughs> that could affect your thoughts. But <laughs> All of a sudden, my headphones is connected with my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the problem with that idea is, I mean, hypothetically, it would be possible from a causal point of view, but our brains are not, don't, like, we don't have enough energy associated with brain waves or any, or associated with the brain in general. It's not strong enough to create radio signal. Hence, why a device would come in play. When you think about... Bill Clinton, okay, random. There is a point inside of your brain, there is a physical point that lights up. When you think about his face, when you think about his voice, try to connect, well, that was in 2004, I believe, or before, that was before uh, Bush. So there is a physical place there, okay, that will light up when I say Bill Clinton. Let's say we map the entire brain. If we had a device in our heads that understands how every single neuron in your brain lights up and what it means when this one neuron from the left side lights up with this one from the right, it develops an image, a sound, a feeling. And now imagine you send that data to me and I experience that. Doesn't sound that implausible in 20,000 years, right? In 20,000 years, yeah. But when it comes to spiritual and I think metaphysical exploration, that's not a relevant thing to consider, right? Because assuming, you know, assuming that telepathy exists, and that's, I think, the interesting part because, and that's where I'm coming back to the principles of scientists. I think scientists should be curious, should be open to, should be possibilitarians, which is to say they should be open to all possibility. And they should be very much aware of anomalies. So weird things that are constantly showing up that don't fit our paradigm, but that keep on showing up, right? The amount of reference through history to 
with telepathic communica uh, communications is enormous. Well, we would have to bring those people into a room, put them to talk to 50 people right. in, uh, telepathically and see how many of those situations they would actually communicate. I mean... Yeah, but what, but what if our current approach to digging through these kind of setups wouldn't be adequate for unlocking knowledge around this? Would be to bring them to a place and test their power in circumstances that they don't have control of. I mean, if we're in the same room, then it would be more evident to think of telepathy in terms of visual clues, right? Rather than brain waves being transferred over over long distance and then me somehow tapping into these brain waves, right? That would be the more plausible explanation. So I think the interesting case would be telepathic communication over long distances where it seems to be completely defiant with what we know about physics. I don't think that argument holds any longer the moment we really look into what quantum mechanics tells us is possible uh, at the level of the universe. Right. So in quantum mechanics, something could disappear in front of me and appear somewhere where light wouldn't be able to reach at its maximum speed. More specifically, in quantum physics, it is possible for any two elements of space-time to have, even back into history, to have some sort of instantaneous interaction that defies the speed of light. How can someone make such a theory that something right now could have an instantaneous reaction and a relation with something in the future that could be in a different part of the universe. So are you asking this like in a, from a critical point of view? Like how, how, yeah. could that, how could that even work? Yeah, because I'm skeptical. I'm open to ideas. And when I hear, look, I've, I've grew Catholic and I left my religion quite soon, as soon as I started asking questions. And... When I hear the theories from quantum physics, which, well, I don't understand it, and I also want to, to question it. And to me, sometimes I hear it and it sounds crazy. Dude, it blows your mind. And what we're describing here in terms of um, like the thing that I'm referring to, of um, like the instantaneous interaction between two elements, Yeah. Um, it's called non-locality, okay. whereas locality is something that's causally connected. You know, it's local, it's close, at least as defined by the speed of light. Non-locality is the realm of phenomena which is unlocked by quantum physics in which there is instantaneous interaction between any two space-time elements and specifically it's called quantum entanglement. And it's probably the most tested experiment ever mm -hmm. in, the, in the realm of physics. And um, Tested how? In any type of experiment like so, okay. I would have to explain to you a little bit of what this setup looks like. Okay, but are they testing it on a drawing board on a university campus, or um, yeah, on, oh, on, on or they campus. are actually using some uh, physical? No, there's 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 laboratory all over the world with setups um, like with... the Large Hadron Collider. Well, not that one. In that one, they're testing colliding particles. So no, there's laboratories all over the world testing quantum entanglement, by which they're interacting two particles, which then have they become an inter in in an entangled state by smashing two electrons together, uh, not but not like not in like uh, in the certain kind of style of doing it, but just uh, there's a gentle interaction that you can have between two electrons, mm -hmm. and then if you take them apart, you can measure something in one electron, which then will always correlate with an outcome on that same measurement on the other electron, which is usually completely unrelated yeah. unless you perform this entanglement, and then they're always opposite there's this this property of electrons which is called spin spin is dichotomous which is means which means that it can be up or down 
it's two values. Usually there's a 50-50 chance of getting up or down on one particle. And every time you measure it, it's going to be 50-50 again. The same one for the second particle. It's always 50-50. And particles in general are not related. Unless you entangle them and then you bring them apart again, you see an opposite pattern. They're always opposite. If you measure them independently... And no matter how far they are. They're still 50-50. No matter how far they are. And even if you measure them at exactly the same time, say you put one lab... They've done this. So they put one laboratory in, in Delft and the other one was, I think, eight kilometers down the road. So there's eight kilometers of distance, which takes the speed of light, I think, a few milliseconds to travel. So you have this time range of a few milliseconds to perform both um, both measurements at exactly the same time. Yeah. And there was a perfect, perfect anti, anti thing, which means there is some interaction between, like some message being sent from one particle to another, which defies the speed of light, which is to say that it's non-local, it's instantaneous. And they've tested this at Whoa. various distances. I think they've tested it at over 50 kilometers. It's instant. Have they tested it more than 50 kilometers? They're working on it. They're working on it. But the thing is, the math predicts how it's independent from... How do I tangle two particles and then one of them I bring to the other side of the world and then I test? Because um, I think that would be the problem to <laughs> to make this test. I mean, the thing that you're trying to see is that whether this relationship between these particles is still existent you still have this perfect anti-correlation. Even if you measure them in a way that there could have been no light transmission between the two, right? And you can test that on, you know, you could put one particle on the moon and one particle on Earth, or you could put one particle here and one particle down the road, but the same principle is being violated. It doesn't really matter. Shit. So this is quantum weirdness. And quantum yeah. weirdness gets a lot weirder even. Because not only is it possible to have instantaneous interaction between two elements of space, and time at the same time the same thing also happens backward in time it's also possible in a weird way to kind of retrocausal influence something that already happened in the past and this if you look into the wow. details of this it fucking blows your mind dude do you think it could potentially lead to discovery of a time machine in no. the future no impossible impossible yeah <laughs> it reminds me of richard dawkins through a party in a specific day to anyone who came from the future to come to participate and, and nobody came no Aww. nobody came that sounds like me <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. but no it's it's a it's a good question yeah um the way that i've seen it is that an event in the future can change an event in the past from a to b like say there's two two possible ways two possible things that happen two scenario a and b say something is a and then we do something in the future. Yes. And then what happened in the past turned out to be B after all. Without actually changing A to B. What if the message in the future would make it A, but the result of B was required for the message to be sent in the first place? Wouldn't that generate a paradox? So that's the thing. What you're describing here is a certain causal relationship between these two events. Yeah. We need to get into the definition of causality here to understand this delicate question. Because there's two levels of causality. Thinking back to these electrons where these they're entangled and they're both in this unknown state and then you measure them. And then because you measured left to be up, the other one has to be down, which means there's a causal influence of some sort from the one particle to the other telling the other particle, hey, I was up, so you need to go down. Hmm. Right? So there's yeah. a causality there. Between the two electrons, there's a causality. Yes. However, it's not possible, and this is also very well understood by physicists, it's not possible to use this mechanism 
to propagate a causal message between, for example, you and me using this interaction. So say, for example, that there's these two electrons and they're both in this unknown state. I give one to you, I give one to myself. And say, for example, that we we say now this is the this is our uh, this is our deal that if you get it down, then we we uh, I don't know I'm gonna eat a burger and if you get up um, I should eat a yeah I should eat a, so you're a basically sa- telling me about sending a message yeah so this this and this mechanism cannot be hijacked this this causal influence between these two elements cannot be hijacked to send a message like this because if I have my particle and I measure up, then I'm not sure if you're already measured yours to be down. So I'm not sure if you even read your message. The only way for me to check is to go to you and say, hey, did you check your particles? Was there, was there a thing? The only thing that happens is when I message this particle and the particle decides to be up, then the particle tells your particle, go down. But there's no way for me to tell to the particle, go down, so that yours will go up. That doesn't exist. Is there some kind of consciousness that decides up or down? I'm glad you ask. That's why I think consciousness is very important in all this. Because okay. it... So, and now you're really touching the metaphysical essence of quantum physics. Metaphysical. Yeah. So. What is the meaning of metaphysical? It's a word I hear being thrown around. So physics is just, you know, um, reality. And then metaphysics is kind of what is, what is the nature of reality? What is the, you know, what are the fundamental pillars of reality that really, from which really everything emerges? So it's the stuff that we no longer understand on the level of mathematics, but it's kind of the principles that constitute the mathematics. Um, it's philosophy, really. Okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot of philosophy here. <laughs> um, the philosophy of physics, that's what it is. And that that's what intrigues me the most. Yeah. Now, as to your question around f- consciousness, and this is where stuff gets interesting, if you ask me, you have to understand that quantum particles are different from... so. An electron, for example, has this property up or down, the spin, right? But you have to truly understand that it's not the same as a car being red or blue. Because regardless of us peeking out the window when a car passes, I mean, say you hear a car pass by mm-hmm. and you know there's a car and you know the car has this defined, this, fine, this definite property color, um, it's red or blue for whatever reason, these are the only two options. You know that the car is going to have a color regardless of you peeking outside the window, right? Yeah. And then only when you look, you know for sure which one it is. But you're 100% sure that the color was not determined by, by you, you looking. looking at the car. Yeah, it was already painted. It was already painted. It's a characteristic of the object. Exactly, yeah. It's a definite property, as the way physicists put it. Mm-hmm. Now, this breaks down the level of quantum physics, which is to say that an electron is not up or down. It is actually in a superposition of both up and down at the same time. And that's mind-blowing, because... That is the equivalent of a car being red and blue at the same time. And it does not mean mix red and blue and get purple, whatever whatever that two mixes is. I don't know. But Yeah, yeah. Um, is it purple? Mm-hmm. No. Is it? Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that was a guess. Uh, well, it was a guess. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thanks. Like, it's definitely so not yellow. It's not. So it's, n- it, it's, it's not purple. It is red and blue at the same time, which makes no sense. You cannot understand that. But it's what happens at the quantum level. And then only when you interact with it does the... The superposition, which is called the superposition of two options, does it break down and collapse into one of the two options? Now, the question is, and that's the question you asked me, what is the mechanism? I'm, I'm, I'm frowning listening to this thinking, 
why does this even work? What, who came up with this system and how can you hold this in your mind? Like, how do we understand it from, like, who, who discovered it? Or how was nature designed this way? <laughs> nature. Yeah. yeah. Well, ask God. <laughs> All right. Sir, God, why? Okay. So let me let me try to speak for God here. <laughs> yeah. I have no fucking idea. PR. <laughs> he talks in uh, ambiguous ways. <laughs> he's, uh, he's both... Pleased and unpleased is my question. Exactly. So all we know about what God thought of this, so to say, is that there is a waveform. That's how we currently understand it. And the waveform is a mathematical construct that just kind of describes the probability of it being this or that or a little bit of both. And then somehow when you interact with it, this probability becomes actualized. And the mechanism behind this, we think, has to do something with... Uh, observation um, and clearly you know the the more intricate you get the more detailed the more technical you get um, observation is interaction there's no there's no way to observe something without interacting with it because but when you're observing you are just looking at it and allowing their the particles of light to come to your eyes so that's that's an observation of a microscopic object right I mean um, light just comes off the Light comes off the, um, the, uh, the the particle, the the car, and then it falls in your eyes. So there is some sort of interaction between. Right. But it's negligible because the car is humongous, and one photon is not going to be. It's not going to make any difference in the macroscopic state of that object. And what I mean is that is the car's uh, photons that are coming towards you, so you are just the recipient. You're not really. But there is still an interaction. But the. The point here is that on the level of cars, which are humongous objects, one photon or a bunch of photons that come off the car and land on your eye are not going to be strong enough to put the system in a different state. But if you're talking about an electron, an electron operates on the level of a photon. As a matter of fact, electrons and photons are interchangeable in some parts of physics. So there's no such thing as looking at an electron. The only way you can measure an electron is by having it go through a magnetic field, and then uh, this magnetic field does something to it. I see. But then... Um, so it seems to me like this magnetic field has uh, a lot of power. So yeah, but then, I mean, this magnetic field is a little bit too undetailed because there is really a way to not actually kick it out of its orbit. I mean, there's a really subtle way in which we sh in which which would be the equivalent of not doing anything with it, not not poking it, but just looking at a smoking gun, you know, say that an electron firing an electron is like kind of a looking at a smoking gun where all we're doing is, is just smelling the smoke that came off it. Mm. So we're really not interacting with it other than, um, other than observing it still. Yeah. But it's just, a, I mean, whatever that observation is, it's just, it's a technical thing, but it's a bit more tending towards interaction. But what it boils down to is that our observation, which has to do something with our conscious decision, we think, uh, is related to this choice. So there seems to be a fundamental interaction, in one interpretation at least, of quantum physics, uh, between how quantum physics operate at the quantum level and on, on one end, and on the other hand, consciousness being a physical entity rather than just being something that floats in the brain that interacts with these particles. There seems to be something very intricate at play here. So it seems like our consciousness could be 
affecting the, uh, the electron, as in some kind of wavelength emitted by our mind, that as soon as it observes the, uh, the electron, it makes it resonate with it. Could, it, could that be a possibility? That uh, our consciousness has an effect beyond our physical body? I think it's very well possible. Um, this would imply not the idea that I described earlier that consciousness emerged from the brain and then you know if you just put another if you just put together enough neurons and enough brain cells ultimately what you get is consciousness but that the brain cell the brain cells is merely just um, um, a platform through which consciousness is received so think of it as a television right now we have a television that has your laptop has a DVD drive, or not anymore probably, but your laptop has software on it and it can just play, uh, I don't know, a, a video file. But back in the days, old TVs, they had antennas, right? And mm -hmm. they still displayed the same thing and they just weren't generating it themselves. They were receiving it from radio signals. So the same way one could think about consciousness, rather than it being generated in the brain itself, it could be received from out outward. That is uh, a very exotic idea that is out there. And these are generally the two flavors, like there's the, the one side of the spectrum, which is complete brain emergence, and there's the other side of the spectrum, which is complete um, non-emergence, which is to say that consciousness is out there just the same way that light is out there, which would be very weird to, to think of its implication. Um, and yeah, it's a, very, it's a very technical question. I mean, if that would be possible, that we are just, our brain is an antenna, then you would be careful with entering a special kind of enclosulation that would stop certain waves from the universe to hit you. But I guess this would go beyond the laws of physics and mm. it would just, since you are living in the real, in reality, there is a layer underneath that we will never be able to, to understand that is communicating that consciousness to your brain. And I bet if that would be true, then it's also communicating to other brains, every other brain there is. And depending on the, the spin of your brain, the properties of your brain, it will say up or down to every neuron you have, which would define who you are, your personality, your character. Or anywhere in between, you know, there could be, there could be some hard coded, I mean, I mean, a motherboard in a computer has a certain shape, which puts constraints on what software it can it can it can operate with, right? Right. And if you connect, way, if you connect to the internet, you uh, you can do a lot in the cloud. For sure, but then still, your motherboard might not support 4K resolution, right? So yeah. in the same way, and this is where it boils down to different forms of consciousness. You know, the brains of humans might just be way more better to receive and deal and create something nice out of this consciousness in the way that we experience it. Whereas the brain of any other animal, depending on which one you look at, they also do something with it. Yeah. But the emergence just brings it to a, like the, the, the complexity of the hardware. Yeah. Just gives rise to a less profound form of manifestation of consciousness in their psyche. Oh, and I find this such an interesting subject, especially when you think about what if our hardware got enhanced. Oh yeah. What if, uh, yeah. So what if meditation enhances that hardware, that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it's interesting. What, yeah. if, what if psychedelics not only induce visuals in your brain, like a neurological glitch, 
what if apart from that it also act allows you to receive different signals through these antennas what if yeah. what if you, what if what if that you're accessing out there is actually real yeah you know these are things that are to me not i mean i'm not i'm not claiming they're true but i'm i've become a possibilitarian these days yeah. all right we need to bring it to an end yes i have my meeting thanks for uh thanks for coming today man time has come to an end thanks for having me yes Let's do an episode two on quantum physics. Yeah. <laughs> and we can talk more about psychedelics, which is your yeah. expertise as well. A lot of things to talk about, dude. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks, man. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. For me today, I'd like to ask for any feedback from anybody listening. Please join our Facebook group, Wise Monkeys Podcast, and send us a message. If you have something nice to say or if you think something can be improved, what you don't like, what you like, let me know. I'm happy to improve. Cheers and have a good day. Ciao, ciao.